there are those mornings when a particular portion of the celebration, the worship of the Lord, touches your heart. Um, I often tell Jeremy that his pastoral prayers are a sermon to me before I get to preach to him, and this morning that was certainly the case. Thank you, brother, for that prayer that ministered to my soul. Well, for those of you who are guests with us today, we are in a study of First Peter. First Peter isn't typically what people think of when they think of Advent. We are celebrating in song um, some events that come around in the church calendar, but we are continuing on with our preaching schedule as usual, and we have been in a study of First Peter chapter 2 for some weeks now. If you'll join me there, First Peter chapter 2. Today we'll be looking principally at verses 18 and 19, but I will begin reading in this section heading starting in verse 11 and going down to verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject or submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Household slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, or for this finds favor. When... Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we thank you for this time of year. It is a time of year where we celebrate our Emmanuel, God with us, our Jesus, who came down to take the form of a slave, being made as a man, so that he might be our perfect sacrifice, our substitute our pure and undefiled atonement. Lord, as Jeremy mentioned, and we confess to you, this season often sucks up a lot of our attention, time, our affections. It even takes away, because of our own sin and fallenness and actions, our joy. Lord, many of us here this morning are tired. We find that the end of this season feels a bit like a race, and it is even difficult for us on a good and normal Sunday morning to concentrate how much more difficult on a morning like this. Would you please, by your Spirit, empower me to preach words that are right and true and pleasing in your ears, and empower your people to hear your truth, that their lives might be permanently and forever changed, that they might be conformed more to the image of your Son. It is in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. 
Well, just a brief recap of last week's sermon. We talked about just the first word of verse 18. In your ESV, it says servants. The Christian Standard Bible has the preferred rendering, in my mind, household slaves. That's the Greek word oikates. You remember we talked last week about how these individuals, men and women, um, might even have included children, were not independent contractors. These were not free men. These were not day laborers. Um, Wayne Grudem says um, that they were those who were under complete legal and economic authority of their masters. Um, By the way, and let's just say this in passing, if you think that slavery does not exist, um, I would ask you who has legal and economic control of your life. We might even say absolute economic and legal control of your life. And if you're not sure, you can try skipping paying your property taxes this year and you will find out. The law of God, number two, we talked about last week, the law of God protects both slaves and masters under a code held together by the love of God and the love of neighbor. This code prohibits man-stealing, making it punishable by capital punishment. This code is a case law system that is grounded in the golden rule, the love of God and love of neighbor. God's Mosaic law protects both the indentured servant and the master. Number three, the New Testament writers are primarily concerned with the spread of the gospel. We answered the question, why didn't they just abolish slavery? Because we believe in their mind the gospel is the only thing that can save eternally. We know this to be true. And so why preach something that will save momentarily while losing the soul of the individual that we're trying to free from slavery? The gospel is the only thing that can save eternally. The New Testament writers also communicate to us that the kingdom of Jesus filling the whole earth will eliminate man-stealing. A familiar passage that we often read on uh, Christmas time or during Christmas time. It's from Isaiah 9. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish this. Well, finally, at the very end of last week's message, we looked at how the gospel shows us the telos, or the end of slavery. Not only was Christ our perfect example of humility, and in His being enslaved in humanity, He set us free from our slavery to sin. We find what one sister communicated to me last week at the end of the service is the perfection of slavery. That is that we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are perfect slaves. We are made slaves forever of Christ Jesus. And beloved, we are going to have to get comfortable with terminology like that. We want slavery, as I mentioned last week, completely out of our minds. But the Bible communicates to us that we will forever and joyfully be the slaves of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this week, as I mentioned, we're going to look at Two verses, verses 18 and 19. I don't have much of an outline this time. We're just going to work our way through those two verses together. Verse 18, servants or household slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also 
to the unjust. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this passage is that Peter is communicating that these household slaves should be submissive. They should be submissive. That's our Greek word, hupotasso, that we saw back in verse 13, which is communicated to us generally as citizens of a country, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This is the same imperative command. The household slaves or servants are to be subject to their masters. You remember that I communicated to you back in the week when we discussed verse 13 that submission is our accepting and taking our God-commanded place in the world. We do this voluntarily and with joy. Now, these are not the only times that Peter's going to discuss this word. I've mentioned this before, but he's discussed in verse uh, 13 of chapter 2 what we might call governmental submission, submission to governmental authorities. In verse 18, today we're going to talk about what might be most easily communicated to us since slavery doesn't affect us in the West like it did in the New Testament times, uh, what we might call economic submission. Now that is a broad category and I don't want to oversimplify things, but how this passage might be communicated to us through perhaps an employer-employee relationship, um, we're going to think of this in terms of economic uh, submission. In chapter 3, verse 1, a very popular and exciting kind of submission today is patriarchal submission. Submission of a wife to a husband. And then lastly, Peter will discuss in chapter 5, verse 5, what is ecclesiastical submission or submission from church members to their elders. Well, what is Peter commanding of the household slaves here? He is communicating and commanding joyful submission. Now, I would ask you, beloved, as we start studying and examining this passage this morning, is there anything in your heart that chafes at the idea that an inspired apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would say to household slaves, be submissive to your masters? I would ask you, is there anything in your heart that wants to kick back against that? I don't like that. I don't like that God, not just the apostle, but God himself is communicating to household slaves in the time of the New Testament and the inspired and ongoing truth that's still communicated to us today, submission. This is the will of God that household slaves should obey their masters, even cruel ones, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Almost all of us in this country and in the West have lived our entire lives in a culture that is drowned in an egalitarian mindset. And what do I mean by that? Everything and everyone everywhere has to be equal. Everybody's got to be on the same page all across the board. There have to be equal opportunities. There have to be equal rights. There have to be equal employment and equal access and equal pay and equal outcomes and equal housing. There has to be gender equality. There has to be mortgage equality. There has to be marriage equality. There has to be LGBT, LGBTQ plus equality. There has to be animal equality. There has to be tree equality. By the way, that actually has its own website, tree equality. There has to be environmental equality, uh, equality laws, equality acts, so on and so forth. You see that the zeitgeist of our age, the, the spirit of our age is obsessed with this idea of egalitarianism and equality. And we just have to admit to ourselves that whether we like it or not, all of us have been born, brought up, and raised in an environment where basically swimming in the water 
of egalitarianism. When we come to passages that communicate to us that there is a hierarchy, there's probably something even deep down inside the most mature Christian that says, in my flesh, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like the idea that everybody just can't be the same. Why can't we all get a trophy? Why can't we all get a prize? Why can't we all be paid the same amount? That guy makes a million dollars. Why can't I? Why don't we just spread things out? Why don't we just make it fair to everybody? Can I, can I ask you to back up in the scriptures, beloved, and examine this truth of egalitarianism? Okay. Now, I know I've hit on this a lot. I know we've talked about this for weeks at Christ the King. But I want you to know this is what we're swimming in. It's what we're dealing with all the time. And egalitarianism fundamentally is satanic. It is fundamentally satanic. Let me quote to you from Genesis 3. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was Satan's argument? Don't you want to be the same as God? Don't you want to be the same? He's got one up on you. He's got access to things you don't have. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be right with God? This is a satanic movement, and it is still very prevalent today. We have to repent of any impulse in us that gets to a passage that calls us to step below to take the lower seat and accept it with joy repenting of any idea that this egalitarian movement is Christ's will for us it is not everyone in every place all over the world has a station that God has assigned to them and here he's communicated to these household slaves I've assigned you a place in my providence, in my eternal plan, before the foundation of the world, I determine that you would be in the house of a master. And are we brave enough to admit God placed in his providence some in the house of masters who would be cruel? We have to accept that this is what the word of God presents to us. Whereas everybody in our world wants everything to be on the same page, God says, no, there is a hierarchy. There are stations that I've assigned to every person. The beauty of submission, beloved, the beauty of submission is that when we accept what God's calling us to in our place in life, we're actually trying to conform ourselves to the very image of the Trinity that God has communicated to us in Scripture. You see, there is one God, but there are three persons in that one God. And each of those three persons has a role to play in the divine counsels of God. Each of those three persons, though all equally God and only one God, each of those three persons plays a distinct role in God's divine plan. The Father commands the Son. The Son submits and is sent of the Father for the work of of the church and saving the church. And depending on which background you come from, the Father or the Father and the Son send the Spirit. And the Spirit goes forth and comes into the people of Christ and fills them with power for ministry. When we submit, we are conforming ourselves not just to the Godhead, but we are also bringing the age to come 
the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth here on earth right now. We are communicating to the world when we accept our God-given place voluntarily with joy that His kingdom has come on earth right now. And it's begun in my heart. I am willing to acknowledge that there is a higher power. It is not me. I am not in control of my own destiny. I don't make my own decisions. I answer to the one who does, and I gladly and joyfully submit to him. So what is pleasing in the eyes of God when he looks down and he sees people in the station that they've been given and that they gladly and joyfully take their place and submit to those who have been set above them? Now, I know that doesn't answer all the questions. I would say, though, that be careful. When we look at passages like this, we want to jump to exceptions. Well, would we counsel somebody to do that today? What if they were being beaten? What if they were being maimed? What if their arm was getting cut off? What would we do today? We want to jump to the exceptions. Let's first come under the rule. The rule of God is that this is the way that I've structured things. This is the way that I've engineered things. I've planned that certain people would be in these places, and it is my will that they submit joyfully, voluntarily to those that I have put over them. Well, he says, and he qualifies this, household slaves, be subject to your masters, your ESV reads, with all respect. Now, the ESV is trying to understand this phrase in relationship to the masters. Slaves, what do you do to your masters? Will you be respectful to them? And that's fine. There's nothing wrong necessarily with that translation. The Greek literally says, however, household slaves, be subject to your masters in all fear. In all fear. Now, when we say it that way, we come up against a problem. Because in the scriptures, we are commanded not to fear man. And in Peter, whenever in all fear is communicated, it's always in relationship to God. It's always in relationship to God. Every time phobos is used, it is directed towards God. In, verse, uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, Peter says the exact opposite of fearing man. He says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being subject, or hupatasso, submitting to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children if you do good, not fearing any intimidation. They weren't to fear their husbands. They weren't to fear them. They were to fear God to whom they should submit. Beloved, what is going on here? we got to ask the question, who are we to fear? Clearly, Peter is communicating to us that the household slaves submit because of their fear of God. Because of their fear of God. The next verse tells us that this is the right interpretation. In verse 19, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. What, what's on your mind? Why do I submit? It's because I know whom I truly serve. And it's the Almighty God. I'm submitting because I'm mindful of Him. I remember Him. I, I know who's watching over me. I know who holds my internal destiny. I know where my rewards are going to be no matter how hard I have it in this life. Mindful of God. Beloved, I want us to recover a right fear of God. Egalitarianism, what I spoke of a moment ago, is primarily responsible for the erosion of this glorious doctrine in the saints, the fear of God. What do I mean by that? We live in an age today 
when people say things like, God is your buddy, right? I've seen hats in youth groups, right? Kids wear these hats and say, Jesus is my homeboy, right? Jesus is your boyfriend, right? We, we hear things like that all the time. But what we're seeing is a culture that is so obsessed with egalitarianism, we have brought God down and we have made him like us. We have said he is one of us. He's communicated to us clearly only in ways that we understand ourselves. There's no distinction anymore between God and man. If you'd like a theological set of categories for this, it's this idea of transcendence versus eminence. Okay? Transcendence versus eminence. Transcendence, you think of the word transcend. God goes beyond anything that we can imagine. No eye has seen, no ear heard. The heart of man has not imagined even what awaits us in heaven. How much less can we comprehend the magnitude of Almighty God? He completely transcends what we're able to understand. Now, God also is communicated to us in the Scriptures through the term eminence, or that God who is close to us, that God who is like us. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time, our Emmanuel, God come to be with us. Now, at various times throughout church history, the church has had an imbalance on one side or the other. I'll give you an example. When you read the beginning verses of the Gospel of John, you hear things like this, the word became flesh and dwelt with us. Now that's communicating eminence to us. God, transcending everything that we can understand, came and dwelt with us. Why is that so important? Because John's day, Gnosticism was the big idea. It was a rejection of everything physical, and only what is spiritual or beyond us is really what's good. So what John is saying in, first, or in John chapter 1 is scandalous. God became... Flesh, that stuff that we hate, this sack of materials that's disgusting and gross and full of corruption, God took that on. He came to be with us. So he's using this argument of eminence, God's nearness to us, to communicate to us a glorious truth about God. But in our day, we have gone the opposite direction. We have said, so much about the eminence of God, His closeness, His nearness to us, that we forgot that He transcends everything that we can think of Him. This week, many of you know, and some of the men were discussing, uh, Tim Keller tweet that's been making the rounds. Um, Tim Keller uh, said in Twitter over the last couple of weeks, he at one point made this comment on Twitter. He said, The heart of the gospel is the cross, and the cross is all about giving up power. The heart of the gospel is the cross. And the cross is all about giving up power. Now, just generally speaking, that's one of those platitudes that kind of rolls off the tongue real easy. It sounds good. Um, there are lots of people that have analyzed and gone in and done some studies on what Dr. Keller was actually saying when he said this. I will say, at very least, what we can say is this is an imbalance this is where our culture is with eminence. We want a God who is near to us. The problem with that statement is that the cross is not about giving up power. It is fundamentally about the holiness of God. It is fundamentally about God's holiness. Have you ever thought about the cross that way? When you're trying to communicate to people who are lost 
the gospel of Jesus. You want to say, well, look at the cross. Jesus died for us. He came for us. He was an atonement for us. All of those things are true. But I wonder, have you ever had a conversation? That oftentimes leaves people I'm evangelizing puzzled. Why a cross? Why the brutality? Why the grotesque nature, all the blood and the nails and the, the killing your own son? Why? It's because of the holiness of God. It's because our sin is so ugly and God transcends us so beyond our thinking. We can't even have a thought that passes through our mind that doesn't have to be repented of. And yet God has never been touched by sin. And, and that God wants to be one with us again. He's got to do something about this holiness that he cannot deny. It is fundamentally who he is. And you know what he does? He does nothing about his holiness. And we don't want him to. We don't want him to change at all who he is. But he has to create justification for the people he desires to save and punish them. It's a divine dilemma. What is he to do? And that's how Jesus decides through eminence to come and be with us and take our place. As our right substitute, he becomes very near and is the propitiation for our sacrifices. Beloved, if God puts no trust in his holy ones, the heavens are not pure in his sight. That's from Job 15. If... God is not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with him from Psalm 5. If God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day, he must do something about sin. Jesus Christ, his one and only son. Jesus Christ, his one and only son. And amen. At the tremendous cost of his own son. Beloved, we have to recover a right fear of God. We have to recover a right respect and awe of the majesty of a God that transcends our thinking. We have to give ourselves wholly devoted to him day in and day out because he is our Lord. Why fear the master? Because I serve God. Because I serve God. Well, yes, Peter does ask that there be submission to the masters in all fear of God. Not only to the good masters, the gentle masters, but also to what the ESV says is unjust. Now, that's not a bad translation again. Justice language is overused today. The Greek word here is the Greek word skoliois. Skoliois. If you've ever heard of somebody who has a condition with their spine called scoliosis, that's what we're talking about here, okay? Uh, Tammy's uncle is a chiropractor. Um, scoliosis, he's got pictures of it on the wall. People whose spines, you know, they're supposed to go like this, and they go like this, okay? They've got a, a sideways curvature in their spine. It's called scoliosis. You get this idea of a master who's not straight. He's crooked. He's wicked. He's twisted. He's demented. The KJV uses the word froward, which means stubborn, obstinate, or has an evil disposition. Slaves are to obey their masters regardless of how their masters treat them. I'll say that again. Slaves are to obey their masters regardless of how their masters treat them. We can't opt out of submission because of mistreatment. Now, I'm stating a broad general rule, okay? 
I understand we get to husbands and wives. We get to categories of how we would handle situations today. We would encourage making appeals. We would encourage reaching out for help. We would encourage some sort of act of justice to right the wrong that's being done to somebody in a situation. But remember, let's think in general terms here of what we're needing to come under. They're commanded to submit even to those as they, who are treating them unjustly or who are crooked in their dealings with them. These slaves, these household slaves, had no recourse. They had no way to appeal. They were legal property and economic property of their masters. So what does God say to them in this place? He says, my eyes are on you. I see you. I know what's going on. It's not forgotten on me. Why are they to fear? Why, or why are they to submit? It's because of the fear of God. Peter's going to tell us in 1 Peter 3, 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but in the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And that's exactly where he goes. In verse 19, For this is a gracious thing. For this is a gracious thing. Peter is giving a reason for their obedience. What They might themselves have asked the question, the gospel has set me free. Why am I not being set free? What's, what's going on? What about if my master is really cruel? How cruel is too cruel? What do I do? For this is a gracious thing. He gives a why. The Legacy Standard Bible says, For this finds favor. For this finds favor. God looks on cruelty and his heart is inclined to that kind of suffering. When people suffer while doing good, when people are righteous and they are hated for it and persecuted for it and hurt for it, this finds favor with God. Now you may have considered the fact that when I came to Christ, didn't I already have the favor of God? I mean, when I, when I became one of his children, I stepped into God's favor, right? I, I did. That's why I became a Christian, because he had favor on me, and that's true. But I, I want to distinguish between two different things. We have the favor of God as Christians in our person, but our actions do not always have the favor of God. Our actions don't always have the favor of God. We need to distinguish between those two things. Uh, I'll give you an example. Our kids at home have assigned chores. They have duties. Each of them in our new home is assigned an area of the house. Somebody has the living room. Somebody has a bedroom. Somebody has this hallway. And uh, they're supposed to get these chores cleaned up. Um, they have special assignments throughout the week as well um, that they're also responsible for. Right? On Friday, I want you to go outside and clean up the porches or whatever. Um, by the way, I would encourage parents... Um, if you don't have a chore schedule for your kids, set one up. It will bless your home. It will bless your children. Um, one of the things, though, that you need to do um, when you set a chore schedule up for your kids is make sure that you check the chores uh, when they're done. Always make sure to go around and see that the kids did a diligent job. We say thoroughly, joyfully, all the way. Um, as you might guess, there are times uh, when our chores, our kids' chores are done well and times when they're not. Um, I, I would say this, if my child did not do their living room cleanup well, 
do they lack my favor? The answer to that is yes and no, right? No, the child who does the living room cleanup is always my child. That will never change. They will always have my love and the sacrifice that it takes to be a parent of a child, even one who didn't do his chores well that time. But the fact that they did not obey my instructions, the fact that they disobeyed me and weren't diligent or they were slothful, they do not have my favor. That action that I saw, buddy, that's not good enough. We're, we're going to, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that means in this house, if daddy asks you to clean up, you're going to clean up. Why? Because children, you need to obey your parents is under the Lord. That's right. It's God's will. In the same way, God looks at our actions and he is either pleased by our righteous behavior or displeased by our wicked behavior and we lose that favor of God in the moment of our doing. Paul communicates to Timothy in his first letter, If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own households and to make some return for their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. This is pleasing in the sight of God. He says in the second letter of Timothy. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful for the master of the house. Ready for every good work. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, do you want to please God and receive His favor moment by moment throughout the day? His blessing on your life. You've known, all of you, men and women, you may have read biographies about some, whom this kind of favor seemed to abide with them. It seemed to stay with them. They have power in prayer. They have power in evangelism. They have power in mercy ministries. They have power in discipleship. Power in truth speaking. Now, I'll say two things because everybody jumps to the extreme. Hold on. I am not saying that you need to get depressed because you think I'll never have that kind of favor. Or you don't need to assume that I'm talking about some workspace salvation. But it is a truth of God. It is a timeless spiritual truth that when we are walking in righteousness, God sees it and gracious favor is given to us. It is a favorable thing. It is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is what's being communicated to the slaves. Also, we can fear God be obedient to Him with joy in full submission to Him, repenting of any known sins that we have, walking in step with the Spirit, and finding favor with God. Be empowered for our parenting. Jeremy prayed that we would be empowered for our parenting and in our disciplining of our children with joy. Walk in holiness. Walk in righteousness. Walk as submitted unto Jesus, fearing Him. And when you stumble on the road, repent, get back up, and do what pleases Him. What defiles the slaves? What defiles them? Bitterness, half-hearted service, 
even retaliation? Yes, this would have lost the favor of God. What is God not, uh, excuse me, what is God not looking on with favor in your life? Are you angry at home? Do you have bitterness towards a spouse or your children or a brother or sister in the church? Is there a porn addiction? Is there a caffeine addiction? Are you insubordinate? Or is your affection for another person inordinate? Your pastime that takes precedence over your pursuit of Christ or your family. What is it that God is calling you to right now? Submit to me in this. Fear me in this. And yet you resist. It might be at bedtime. I want to turn on a show and I want to be entertained. It is not sinful to want to turn on the television and at times to be entertained. But if the Spirit of God is communicating to you, I'm calling you to submission here. You don't seek me with your spouse in prayer at the evenings before bedtime. Be obedient to Christ there. Submit to Him. Find favor from God. We've already talked about this next phrase, when mindful of God... It's not enough for the slaves to suffer from mistreatment to win the favor of God. They suffer mistreatment because they fear Him, because they are mindful of Him. Beloved, I don't understand how atheists make it through life. I do not understand that. Everything in the world to an atheist is meaningless. It's all complete cosmic accident. Everything, even those random conversations that you say, oh wow, that was so convenient that that happened or a choice purchase or a new job or everything. It's, it's got to be. They have to suppress the truth of there being purpose in the world to admit to themselves what they really want to believe is this is all meaningless. There is no meaning here. I don't understand how an atheist makes it through life. I also don't understand how Christians who deny the absolute sovereignty of God make it through life. Suffering happens to the slaves, for example. God could stop it, but He doesn't. He could stop that child being abducted, but He doesn't. Well, I, I need to respect that man who's abducting the child's free will, right? I want to make sure that that man has free will. We can't take that away from him or else he wouldn't be a real person. I don't understand how Christians who deny God's sovereignty make it through life. But we, Calvinists, we Reformed people, have a different kind of problem. We have our own trouble. We know that God is responsible for everything. You say, what's wrong with that? Well, it often leads to a question that is very unhelpful. And that question is, why? Why? I know that you caused this but I don't understand. God, can you give me a little more information? Can you help me understand? Can you help me know why? One of the people who understood God's sovereignty in the scriptures just about as good as anybody could was Job. He understood that God was in control of everything. That was his answer. God brought this about. I'm not going to say a word against him. But then he fell into this abysmal pit of having to ask the question over and over and over again, why? Now, beloved, I will not tell you that it is sin for you to ask God why, but it is dangerous for your soul to get into the place where you're always asking Him over and over and over again, never able to mature, never able to be obedient, never able to grow because you keep asking, why? I'll never be satisfied until I know why she died. 
I'll never be satisfied. I can't release and be free and serve in the world until you tell me why he was taken or why I got cancer or why my husband does this to me or why did you give me a woman like this or why don't you stop all of the murder of the children in our country? The slaves might have asked a similar question. Why am I a slave to a cruel master that beats me? Why? I'm not saying it's wrong to ask, but this kind of introspection can be crippling. It leads us to fear and worry and doubt, and it opens us up to assaults on our faith. Be cautious. I heard Jared, uh, Jared Sparks this week on the Shepherd's Crook podcast. He suggested a different question. He said instead of why, we should get to a place where if we ask why, then we follow it up to God with, so what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do, God? So I have cancer. Okay, God, I've got cancer. I admit it. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve you with cancer? Okay, God, I have a broken marriage. It fell apart. It's gone. It's no more. She left. He left. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve you? This is the kind of question that leads us to freedom, maturity, and obedience that wins the favor of God. Household slaves, set your hope on God. Every person here today is in some kind of hard. It's in some, they're in some branch of what is hard for them. It is a temptation to ask why. But we know what God wants us to do. God, what do you want me to do? Well, he says, rejoice always. Hey, guys, as hard as it may seem, and I don't want to sound insensitive to anybody who's suffering, as hard as it may seem, though, I just found out I had cancer. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. That is so difficult, and it is liberating. You can be set free. I'm in the middle of my life's hard. Lord, what do you want me to do? Keep my commandments. Lord, what do you want me to do? Fear your God. Love your neighbor. Love your enemies. Abide in Christ. We are so captivated by purpose as Calvinists. We want to know the story behind it all. But the Bible does tell us that there are things that are secret. And those belong to the Lord. What He has revealed does belong to us and to our children forever. You know what He's revealed to us? That birds in the air don't worry about things. They go every day, some of them with sicknesses, some of them with a companion that's died, some of them with children that fell out of the nest and got eaten by a skunk, okay? And they don't worry. They're carefree. God's going to bring me everything that I need. I'm told that Martin Luther used to walk through the woods and he would raise his hat to the birds and he'd say, good morning, theologians. You wake and sing, but I, old fool, know less than you and I worry over everything instead of simply trusting in the Heavenly Father's care. Beloved, if you're suffering, if you're anxious, if you're fearful, fearful right now, let it go. That's not the shackles that hold you. 
It's the blood of Christ that holds you. Don't be bound to anything but Jesus. Don't suffer unduly when the Father's loving eyes are on you at all times. These slaves, finally, were looked on with favor by God as they feared Him and they endured sorrows while suffering unjustly. We know that suffering takes a variety of forms. We'll probably talk about these in the weeks to come. You've got things like natural disasters or acts of God. We talked about Job a minute ago. You might remember the Kentucky tornado victims. Um, happened several weeks back. That's a kind of suffering. Illness is also a kind of suffering. You might experience in your lifetime a variety of ailments. And the problem with illness is that those ailments that you suffer, the sickness, it, it, it can feel very arbitrary. Like, why? Why do I always have stomach pain? Why is my back so messed up? Why do my legs hurt? Why do I deal with blood clots? Why do I always have headaches? It feels so arbitrary. And yes, we suffer in that way. There's also a suffering that is a violation of God's commandments. A suffering that is brought about because of someone violating God's moral standards. God says we're to love our neighbor. And yet there are masters who will hurt those under their care. This is a breach of God's revealed moral will. And it is this last form of suffering, this violation of God's moral will that Peter is speaking to. And if we want to know how these slaves were to endure in the fear of God, receiving the favor of God, we have to only look to our perfect example, to Jesus Christ. If there was anyone in the history of the world who did not deserve to suffer, it was Jesus. He gave up the luxury of heaven. He left a place of no needs and entered a body that must have air, water, food, shelter, warmth, rest. His only communion from eternity past had been in perfect love and unity with the other members of the Trinity. Then he was born into a world where everyone he met would be his enemy. And he was spotless all of his days, surrounded by a people so speckled and mottled that he was hated for his own purity. Hated so much that the people he came to save decided to beat him, whip him, mock him, spit at him, deride him, and ultimately to murder him. He carried the cross of our judgment, what justly belongs to us, to the place where we should have been judged, and he was nailed there by his hands and his feet, suspended for six hours between earth and heaven to take the full and just wrath of God that belonged to us on himself. At the end of his sufferings, he died. His heart stopped beating. His body turned pale and white, the blood having stopped flowing through his veins. He had to be buried in someone else's tomb, and there he stayed for three days. And then he got up. And with his first breath, he secured forever the justification of his people. He created a new race of men. One, one, a race who would be born all over again. 
but not from the womb of a woman, but from his spirit. This is what Christmas, as Jeremy mentioned earlier in his prayer, really points to. This is what it's all about. God's gift of his own son. Beloved, Jesus knows how to suffer while being treated unjustly. How do these slaves endure? How do we endure in times of suffering when we don't know what's going on and all we want to know is why? We look to Christ. We look to Christ. Is it too much a thing that God commanded these slaves to bear up under unjust treatment of their masters? This is the kind of conduct that the wicked sees. We read about in verse 11. It prepares their hearts for the seed of the good news. And they turn in repentance and faith upon hearing the gospel and they're saved. Why? It's this good conduct. It's this submitting even under cruel treatment. Now, these masters who treated their slaves unjustly, who had hearts who were softened, who converted and turned, give glory to God today in heaven. And Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We don't have to worry about the judgment that is missed out on because there's suffering on this world that's never punished. If people are treated unfairly, if they're treated wrong, if violations of God's commandments are happening and nothing's ever done about it, God will judge. He will judge on judgment day. As Christians, we have hope in that. Those martyrs in Revelation, what did they say? How long until we'll be avenged for what happened to us? And the Lord told them, wait, it's coming. Judgment day's going to get here. Take this robe, be comforted, I will judge them. It's going to happen. Cosmic justice is coming. So beloved, can I ask you, are you suffering today? Be set free in Jesus. Ask God what it is that He wants you to do. Look unto Jesus when in times of trouble. Remember how He suffered mightily on our account. Receive the grace and encouragement to make it through and endure the difficult seasons. God gives us this grace. Are you here today under the realization right now that you're lost? Has the story of Jesus pricked your heart that you're in unbelief? Are you convicted of the coming judgment that day that I just spoke of when God will judge you for your sin and punish you forever in hell? Have you come to grips with your sin, even right now, the Spirit opening your eyes to see that your sin deserves eternal damnation? That is its just and right reward. Oh, lost one, please turn in repentance and faith now to Jesus. Turn to Him. He is still willing, even today, He's ready to receive anyone who repents to Him. Come to Christ. Be saved. For those of us who are in Jesus, you know that you've been set free from your slavery to sin forever. You are now a permanent slave to Christ. Though you are not a household slave, you will certainly suffer mistreatment in this life. You will likely be wronged by someone in your life who has God-ordained authority over you. Remember in those moments, first and foremost, that you serve God. You are His household slave. Fear 
Him alone. I want to encourage you with these words as I close. During the 3rd century after Christ, around 200 to 300 A.D., the persecution from Rome against Christians was empire-wide. Many Christians, instead of a relatively speaking, quick martyrdom, you know, sent out to the wild animals and killed in a few hours, were sent to work in Roman mines. They worked long hours with little rest. They were treated very harshly. And they usually died right there where they were working. The conditions in the mine were grotesque. You can read a lot about it online. It's, um, it's pretty horrid what many of these Christians had to go through. At this time, God appointed a highly educated, wealthy Roman to become a Christian. His name was Cyprian. He faced great persecution for his conversion to Christ, and eventually he was exiled for his unwillingness to recant. He wrote a letter to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ who had been forced to serve as slaves in the mines. Now, what I want you to see is how they were thinking back then of suffering, looking to Jesus, and enduring. This is a very long letter that he wrote. I'm only going to read you the concluding paragraph. And this itself is long. I'll post a link to the full thing if you want to read it. The way that their minds understood the world and suffering is something that we could benefit greatly from. Their direction, where they were headed, what they were looking toward. Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. This is what Cyprian writes. He says, What now must be the vigor, beloved brethren, of your victorious consciousness? What the loftiness of your mind? What exultation in feeling? What triumph in your breast that every one of you stands near to the promised reward of God? You are secure from the judgment of God. You walk in the minds with a body held captive, but with a heart reigning with Christ. You know Christ is present with you, rejoicing in the endurance of His servants who are ascending by His footsteps and in His paths to the eternal kingdoms. You daily expect with joy the saving day of your departure. And already about to withdraw from the world, you are hastening to the rewards of martyrdom and to the divine homes to behold after this darkness of the world the purest light and to receive a glory greater than all sufferings and conflicts as the apostle witnesses and says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us. And because now your word is more effectual in prayers and supplication is more quick to obtain what is sought for in afflictions, seek more eagerly and ask that the divine condescension would consummate the confession of all of us. That from this darkness and these snares of the world, God would set us also free with you, sound and glorious, that we who are here are united in the bond of charity and peace and have stood together against the wrongs of heretics and the oppression of the heathens may rejoice together with you in his heavenly kingdom. He sees, Cyprian sees the glory of the suffering that they're going through, the purifying fire, how it prepares them for the day of glory. 
He even says, as these minds were lit with torches, every time you see, speaking to those slaves, every time you see the wood of one of those torches, remember, you're a slave here, but that wood set you free. Beloved, let us be renewed in our minds. Let us be transformed by looking to Christ and seeing all that we're called to go through here, all the suffering that God presents to us as a gift that we can joyfully respond in submission and receive the favor of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, glorious and timeless. It stands, though men fall all around. And it will stand to the end. And here we have encouraging words written to persecuted peoples so long ago. And yet your spirit is able to encourage us to endure and rejoice even in the midst of our own. We can certainly say comparatively light and momentary troubles. Oh Lord. As Flavel said in the words quoted last week, Christ didn't win us for trifles. He won us to be his bride. And in order to be the bride, we must be adorned. We must be sanctified the remainder of our days. And in your sovereign plan, you've determined how each one of us will be made more like Christ. Many of us through seasons of intense suffering, fear, and doubt. Lord, in those moments, would you please incline our hearts to Christ? Would you please help us to look only to Jesus? How he finishes and perfects our faith and to receive encouragement for our souls that we can run the race with endurance. Oh Lord, as we close out this year, with just about six or seven days left. Would you crown the year with your bounty? Would our wagon tracks overflow with abundance as we look to you? And may our hearts respond and turn back towards you the gifts that you've given us in grateful submission in an offering to you. Oh Lord, please help us to see where sin is still holding us back from all the glories that we experience and can experience in the new covenant. Please show us how to purify ourselves, making ourselves vessels for honorable use, being ready for the master and every good work that he has for us. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.